When my youngest son was in the first grade, he came home from school and he brought home a series of pictures, actually. There were about three different ones. I actually have one that I brought with me um, that he had written about God. Like this one says, I'm thankful for God because God loves all of us and he loved all of the stars and the sun, okay? So he brings us home and there's two other pictures that come with it where he had written about Jesus and he's, tell, he's showing me these pictures and I'm just so proud of him and, you know, I'm complimenting him and telling him how great of a job that he did and, and he said this, he said, my teacher said that I can't write about Jesus or share about Jesus in class anymore. And I said, Josh, that's, that's not true. You can still write about Jesus and you can share about Jesus if you want to. And he said, uh-uh, because my teacher said that I can't do that. I thought, well, wow. Okay, I knew that we had a teacher conference coming up in about a week. I knew that I was not going to be able to argue and win, you know, with my son. No, I said you could. No, my teacher said I couldn't. No, I said you couldn't. No, my teacher said I couldn't, you know, kind of having that kind of conversation. And so I just kind of like, you know, put it aside. And so that night, everyone had gone to bed and I was upstairs working on the computer and it was after midnight, which is not normal for me to be up that late. And I heard a noise outside and I thought, that sounded weird. And you know how you just let your mind go and think, okay, it was probably just a bug or it's just the wind or, you know, something like that. And then I heard it again. I thought, okay, that was not a bug. And so I got up and I peeked through the blinds. And when I did, immediately I see a guy dressed in dark clothing, dark hat, run to the side of the house. And I'm thinking, what do I do? Oh my goodness. I mean, do I, do I run downstairs because I'm in this little bonus room above our garage? And I was afraid, like my imagination's going wild now, that like if I run downstairs, the garage door might be unlocked and they might hear me and they might come in. They may kidnap me before I can even get to my husband. So I do what, you know, you should do. I pick up the phone and I call 911. And I'm telling the, pe- the, the, the woman on the other end, I said, there's a guy outside my house. I don't know if we've left our garage door up, but somebody's trying to break into our house. And she said, can you still see him? And I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to just sit here and keep peeking out the window, you know, letting them know that, hey, I'm here, come and take me, you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, the best that I can, I kind of like pull the blinds back a little bit. And the next thing I see are taillights that come on that are across the street at a neighbor's house that we knew had moved out just a few weeks ago. So I'm relaying all this to the operator. And then all of a sudden, I see the car start backing down the street. And I'm telling her, they're getting away. The car is going away, going down the street. And she's saying, don't worry. There's actually a patrol officer or patrol car on the way. And he is pulling into your neighborhood, like right as we speak. So at this point, I'm going down the stairs. I'm going to wake up my husband, who is completely oblivious to anything that is going on, telling him, honey, somebody's trying to break in a house. At the same time, I'm talking to the 911 woman who is, you know, having a conversation with me. And then she says this. Is your husband's name Mike McDaniel? And is he a pastor at Grace Point Church? And I'm thinking, they've stolen something off his car. It's got a business card attached to it. And then she said, I think there's just some kids who are trying to pull a prank on you. And I'm feeling like a loser. And uh, she said, do you want us to have them come and clean up the mess at your house? I said, no. Can we just pretend like this call never happened? Of course, we actually have the CD recording because some people thought it would be fun to have for history's sake. Okay. And uh, so I'm trying to tell my husband everything that's going on. Okay. It's just some kids that are playing a prank. And then the doorbell rings and it's the cop. And standing outside beside the cop car is our children's minister, And her husband, 
and our former worship pastor and his wife, not former because of this incident, but just saying. We have a picture, even to prove it. I tried to find it. I could not find it. And so the next, and we had a good laugh about it. You know, the next morning we're telling our kids about it. And our kids are like, you know, we've got to get them back. Mom, dad, we've got to get them back. And of course, his parents were like, well, yeah, we got to get them back. And so we want to teach our kids, you know, great pranking ethics. And so we know that the key number one is timing is everything, right? Would you say amen to that? And so we, you know, we're trying to teach our kids this. So we're waiting for just the right time. We wait for a few days. We get the kids all dressed up in dark. We get their faces painted out black. We get our bags of Oreos and Saran wrap, which is our weapon of choice. And we go to their apartment and we find their vehicles and we take the Oreos apart and we put them all all over the car windows and we take the saran wrap and we wrap those cars. We wrap those babies good like a cocoon. You were not getting into those things unless you had a knife or a pair of scissors. And we had a little fun with it too with our kids. Every time like a car would drive by, we'd be like, duck, someone's coming. Shh, be quiet. And they would giggle, you know, under the car. And when it was all done, we went home high-fiving everyone. Okay, it's time to go to bed, kids, you know, kind of thing. And we had our fun. So the next morning I get up. And it's parent-teacher conference day. What? And uh, I go to the parent-teacher conference, and she's telling me how great Josh is doing in some things, and she's telling me some other areas that he needs to work on, and the conversation is kind of coming to a close. And so I, I gently and tactfully bring up, I just said, you know, I just wanted to get some clarity on something. Josh said that um, he wasn't allowed to write about Jesus in his sentences or allowed to share in class whenever they shared their stories with the class. And she said, well, that's true because it makes me feel uncomfortable and it's a little bit awkward. And I just nicely empathized with her. I said, I, you know, I understand. I'm really sorry, you know, that it makes you feel uncomfortable. But the reality is that he can share about Jesus if he desires to during story time. And he can write about it. And he kind of needs to know from you that that's okay. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to tell him that you said that he can do these things. She completely understood, was very amiable about it and everything. And then she said this. So Josh was sharing today in class (laughs) something about you teaching your family, like, to get dressed up in dark clothing. Y'all went out, like... It was late at night and you were like destroying someone's car and hiding from the cops when they came by. What is up with that? Busted. That's right. See, the thing about what I love about this story is, see, I could tell you both of these stories. I could tell you about Josh and the school teacher and, and not being able to write about Jesus in class. I could tell you about our wonderful staff and how they love to prank us and us teaching our kids how to prank people back. But the thing is, and oddly enough, while they could be totally two completely different stories, they complement, oddly go together to give you the overview and a great picture, comprehensive overview of the life in the McDaniel household. We're going to look at a passage of scripture today that does exactly the same thing. It's a passage that you're probably familiar with. And actually, if we wanted to divide it up into two segments, we could do that. You may have even heard it taught that way. But today, we're not going to do that. Today, we're going to keep them together. Because I believe that as we look at these two conversations that Jesus has one with the woman at the well, and then one on the heels of that with his disciples, that we're going to see what John intended to happen when he wrote the book of John in chapter 4. John masterfully 
weaves these two narratives together, these two stories together so that they see that, so that we see that they are one unit and it gives us this complete comprehensive overview of who Christ is, of what he's teaching, of how he's impacting other people's lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Jesus instigated glorious disruptions in both of these conversations. He instigated a glorious disruption in the mind and the heart of a woman at the well so that she would see him for who he really was. And he instigated a glorious disruption in the mindset of the disciples and how they normally operated and how they thought about Jesus and his mission. I love it that in Scripture, that when we look in it, and we've been talking about discipleship for the last 11 weeks here at Grace Point Church, that the Scripture reveals to us that Jesus had these ordinary people who needed to learn who were uneducated, broken sinners. And he called those people and said, hey, come follow me. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, it makes me feel like normal. Like, okay, you know, I've got a lot to learn too. And so, so I can be part of that. But then the more that I look at who they are and who they were, I also see that they didn't just have a lot to learn. They had a lot that they had to unlearn. And Jesus was always reshaping their misguided notions, prejudices, challenging their assumptions, revealing half-truths, lives that they believed, disrupted their thinking, interrupted their plans, led them to crisis beliefs, and he always did it for one reason. So that they would experience his glory, which fueled their passion to participate in his mission. Mike gave us a definition of a disciple that the staff came up with, that our deacons and trustees even had input. And this is what it was, that a disciple is becoming, I love that word becoming. A disciple is becoming a fully obedient multiplier of Jesus Christ. And if this is true, if we are continually becoming disciples, then that means that everyday life is a discipleship lab where we are continually growing and succeeding and failing and wrestling and struggling and seeking and learning and becoming this multiplier who is following, fully devoted, following Jesus Christ. Every day in our life is a discipleship lab where God is teaching us to weave the gospel into every fabric of our life and to weave the gospel into the fabrics of the lives of those around us. So take your Bible or pull it up on your phone, turn turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at this passage there and jumping in and kind of taking a peek into this passage where Jesus is going to take his disciples on this field trip, traveling to a location that they've not gone, going away that they've never been, and he's going to school them concerning his mission. And all along the way, he's going to teach a woman concerning who he is, and then he's going to give his disciples, a front row seat and a free ticket to participate in all that has just taken place. So let's pick up reading in John chapter 4, verse 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making uh, disciples and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea, which is in the south, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. The first disruption that I want you to see is this, is that Jesus invited the disciples on this journey and he disrupted their normal path and he implemented a new strategic path. If you've heard the story of the Samaritan woman before, or you've heard any story in scripture where Samaritan and Jews are used in the same sentence, then you've always heard this, that Samaritan and Jews don't like each other. But I want you to know more that this is more than just a sixth grade dislike type thing. There's a long, deep history here that has taken place. If we were to go back, just to give you the context of what is taking place here, and we were to go back to like King David, you know, the guy who, you know, killed Goliath with his slingshot. He had a son named Solomon. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And there, when Rehoboam was king, the kingdom divides. And Israel goes to the north and Judah goes down to the south. And I want you to listen to what happens to the people of Israel. This is found in 2 Kings 17. It's not going to come up on the screen. I just want you to listen to it. You might even jot it down. Because here's one thing I love about scripture. It's like if you ever question something about scripture, you want to know deep more something more deeply about a passage that you're reading, you can usually find the answer of that in another section of scripture. So in 2 Kings chapter 17, this is what it says about Samaria and about this time period. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and they came to Samaria and the king captured Samaria and he carried away the Israelites to Assyria. Why? Because the people of Israel had secretly done evil things against the Lord and did everything that was not right. They made idols and they worshiped them. They burned their sons and daughters as offerings and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Lord. So Israel was exiled from their own land until this day. And the king of Assyria brought in people from other nations and placed them in the cities of Samaria. So fast forward several hundred years. Israelites have returned but there are enemies that are in the land. And any Israelite who had remained in the land had intermingled with these enemies, with these pagan gods, with these pagan people. And so they had disdain toward each other. They couldn't stand each other. The animosity was real. So instead of traveling, when Jesus said, I must go through Samaria, this is not normal. Normal would have been to go out of the way, actually, What normal would have been would be from people from Judea to travel east, cross the Jordan River. Instead of going straight up, which would have taken three days, they would have gone around and taken six days to get there just to avoid the people of Samaria. At one point, the Pharisees, trying to cause harm to Jesus, they actually call him a Samaritan. I guess thinking that's the worst name that they could come up with for him. John chapter 8, verse 48. They couldn't stand the Samaritans. And Jesus says, hey... Let's go this way. Now, wouldn't you have loved to have been on the road and overheard that conversation? All we know, though, is Jesus said, I've got to go through Samaria. And the Greek word actually means like, he, like, like an obligation. Like there is no way that he could pass this up. And so Jesus disrupts normal, takes the disciples on a journey 
that they've never been before. Now, let me ask you a question. If Jesus were to disrupt your plan, if Jesus were to interrupt your path, if Jesus were to throw a curve in the trail, how do you think that you might react? What would be your mindset? See, our mindset is really just this, it's a collection of an attitude. It's a collection of the way that we think. Coaches want their, their athletes to have a growth mindset. Educators want their students to have, a, to have a growth mindset. Businesses want their employees to have a growth mindset. But you could also just have a fixed mindset. But if Jesus were to interrupt your plan, what would your mindset be toward God leading you in a new direction? Would it be that I'm concerned that the path has too many unknown obstacles? Or would your mindset be, I see unknown opportunities and I'm willing to risk knowing that God is with me? Or would you fall somewhere in between? Where would you be on the continuum of your mindset if God were to disrupt you and take you down a new path? What path is in front of you that may be raising up some fear or anxiety? Is it something that may be countercultural? Is it because it goes against the norm of society? Is it because it might break the rules of everyday conversations that can happen in the office? Is it because you're not supposed to have those kinds of conversations at school? Is it because your family wouldn't approve? Is it because you might have to give up a certain kind of salary? If God today were to say to you, I want you to go this path and nobody else is walking that path, what would your mindset be? I think and I believe that it's time for us as Grace Point Church to think differently. We have a mindset in going short-term mission trips. We have a mindset that somebody might go and serve for two years. But what if our mindset wasn't so safe? What if we had a different kind of mindset? What if we didn't come to God and say, hey, God, you could do A, B, C, or D, but instead we came to God with a blank check and said, okay, God, blank check, where do you want me to go? What if it's time that we start seeing some well-paid professionals leave the familiarity of American soil and take their profession in workplaces where globalization is happening, but the gospel isn't present? What if it's time that we see some families, many families within our church that say, yeah, you know what? We have small kids and yes, it might require some training, but we are willing and ready to leverage it all and to go somewhere else and plant a church overseas. What's it going to require for some teenager to say, you know what? I'm going to go and study abroad. And what is it going to require for that parent to hold on to that teenager in their heart, but to let them go in their hand, knowing that God is leading them, even though it might not be according to the parental preconceived plans. What would it be like to start seeing our small group start praying for the people in your small group? Asking God, who would you set apart to send from us? What would it look like if we stopped talking about the need to share the gospel and actually started holding each other accountable to having gospel conversations? Like, who did you share the gospel with this past week? What if we stopped praying, God, what do you want me to do? with my life or with my retirement or with my money and started praying, God, where in the world do you want me to live during my retirement? Where do you want me to work? And how do you want me to spend my money? Jesus gloriously 
disrupts our preconceived paths, our normal plans. And if we allow him, we'll implement and take us on a journey, a strategic path that we've never been. Let's, let's move on down in this passage, John chapter 4, and, and let's pick up where Jesus is having a conversation with this woman at the well. And I want you to notice kind of um, what's going on here. I want you to notice the rhythm of what is taking place. So in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the disciples are not on the scene. Okay, note that. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. First of all, I want you to notice a couple of things. I'm going to point out a few, but as we're reading through this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman, you might even circle and note a few yourself. But here's one that I want you to note. Notice who initiated the conversation. Was it the woman or was it Jesus? Jesus initiates the conversation by saying, hey, give me a drink. Now, before, whenever I would read this passage, I would kind of read it like as if this woman is maybe like a little timid, like this little shy, little Samaritan woman, like, why would you be talking to little old lowly me? But the more I read it, the more I think, no way. Like this woman is quick and she is sharp. And I think what she is thinking is maybe a little bit indignant, like, why are you a Jew talking to me, right? Because what she does is she continues in this conversation with seven either statements or questions. But even though she continues and Jesus has initiated this conversation, Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Follow along in the conversation and notice what he's about to do. He's about to insert and to flip the conversation from being just a a surface level, uh, geographical, cultural, give me some water type conversation to a spiritual conversation in one phrase. Jesus answered her, if you knew, here it is, the gift of God. He just throws it in there. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as his sons did in his livestock? Now, I've been, I don't know about the livestock thing, drinking out of the well, but the people drinking out of the well, that would be completely fine with me. But here's what's going on. Jesus has introduced a spiritual concept here. And then he's left her hanging with something mysterious that she doesn't really know completely about. To her, living water is this flowing stream. The well that she was at was Jacob's well, which still exists today, and the water would percolate from the bottom. So to get water from the well, you would literally have to heave over a bag made of animal skin with a long rope and then pull it up and and do this repetitively until you filled up your jar. But she's wanting to know, how are you going to get this living water and where is it going to come from? And Jesus continues with the intrigue. And he says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water 
so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. Now, Jesus has something that she wants. She doesn't completely understand it, but he's initiated the conversation. He's converted it to a spiritual conversation. And now he's got something that she wants more of. And he's going to take interest in her personally. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that you have no husband, for you have five husbands, Larry, Bobby, Ricky, Tommy, and Sam. And Johnny, who you are, see, I just threw that in, just make sure you're still with me right now, okay? And Johnny, who you're with right now, is not your husband. What you said is true. Jesus knows her intimately. Of course, we don't know the names of her husband, but I guarantee you, Jesus did. And the fact that now that he is peeling back the layers of her personal life is explaining Psalm 139. You guys have probably heard this before. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you know my thoughts from afar, you've searched at my path, scrutinized my path, you know when I lie down. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all. Jesus knew everything about her and he is pulling back the layers of her personal life. And as they get personal, now what happens is she begins to reveal what she really believes. She begins to reveal her religion. She begins to reveal what she's heard. She begins to reveal maybe even her confusion about which religion is even right. And maybe some of you are in that same camp today. And she says this, sir, I I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you don't know, but we worship we do know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Do you think she's thinking, maybe I want to be one of those? And the woman said to him, I know that a Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am him. He introduces himself in this conversation, which quite honestly, you're probably thinking that was the longest series of verses that we've had to sit and listen to anybody ever read from the stage. Thank goodness she threw in Bobby, Larry, Mickey, Robbie, and Tommy. I think this conversation went much longer than what we just read right here. It was personal. It was intimate. It was compassionate. It was convicting. Jesus is revealing himself to her initiating a spiritual conversation with a woman he ought not be talking to he completely disrupted the social structure and inserted a gospel conversation when was the last time that you defied social structure or forget that 
Let me just ask you this question. When is the last time that you started, initiated a gospel conversation with someone? What is your mindset towards sharing the gospel with others? Is your mindset, I'm intimidated to have spiritual conversations with others? Or is your mindset, I'm intentional in gospel conversations with others? You see, we're reading this scripture almost like in summary, in some ways to get reacquainted with it in a horizontal level as we're looking at it together. But if we could just for a minute, can we just like open ourselves up vertically to God and not just get reacquainted with a passage of scripture, with a story that we know that many of us could probably quote from memory, but could we just be reminded of who we are when Christ initiated that conversation with us? The brokenness, the sin, it didn't matter your demographic, your ethnicity, your gender, your past. Jesus came in, initiated a conversation with you, offered you something you, religion was not working for you just like it wasn't working for the Samaritan woman. And because you chose to follow him, you now have living water that he was speaking of, speaking of springing up inside of you. And it cannot be contained and it ought to be shared with those who are thirsty. And so who are you giving a drink to? We cannot be in love with the gospel and not be affected by God's love for other people. To be a disciple and to follow Christ is also an invitation to further his kingdom. We are not to be Christians who are just compliant do-gooders. We are people appointed by God to contagiously contaminate the world with a radical and revolutionary gospel. Three, Jesus disrupted the disciples' worldview concerning what matters most. Now you're thinking, wait a minute here. Wait, wait. Jesus had a conversation with the woman, right? Where are the disciples? Where are the disciples? They had gone to town to do what? To get food. Well, guess who's now coming back on the scene? So let's pick up in verse 27. Remember I said, we're looking at two different stories here, and yet they beautifully and by Jesus Christ orchestratedly come together. So in verse 27, just then his disciples come back as if right on cue. And they marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said anything. They didn't say, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? But they were thinking it. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him to eat. Finally, they're talking. Hey, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. So let's evaluate where all the key players are in these two stories that have been happening. Where's the woman? Where is she right now? She is running back to the town because she's got to tell someone 
And we know that she said this, hey, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. But I don't think that that's all she said. I think that that's like the Twitter version of what she said. You know how I know? Because she's a woman. You ever heard a woman say, hey, let me tell you, you are not going to believe what happened today. And then she never says anything else. No way. Like if I said to my husband, honey, you are not going to believe what happened today. This is what he's, he's not going to say a word. He's just going to do this. Like, like he's thinking, okay, how much time am I going to have to give to this, right? And so she is going back to the town to tell people about the life-transforming thing that she has just experienced. And we're the disciples now. The disciples are here with Jesus, and they are dumbfounded, speechless. And what do they do? They go to the safest thing possible, uh, food. When in doubt, always food, right? And he says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And this puts the disciples in a mental conundrum. They don't know what to think. They don't know what this means. And Jesus is continually putting them in these types of situations, forcing them to discover what it is that they believe and what it is that they don't believe and to learn what they need to learn and to unlearn what they need to unlearn. But Jesus, who is exhausted, weary, hungry, is sitting here satisfied content, fulfilled. Why? Because he knew what mattered most and he wanted his disciples to learn what mattered most. What is it that mattered most? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When we lived in Zambia, I would meet with a group of about five uh, Zambian believers and they, were, they had been believers for quite some time, but yet they were in a place where the church was not reproducing itself. It wasn't even growing. And so we would meet together once a week for Bible study and we weren't going through any program. We were simply just getting in scripture and seeing what it was that disciples did. Well, I had the opportunity to take them out to a village with me one day and we were going out to a village where there were people that were there who had never heard of Jesus Christ and I wanted them to have this experience. And so we go to this village and it's at a place that doesn't have any electricity, doesn't have any running water. So all the women, we uh, go to the, the water pump uh, to fill up our large containers with water. And when we get there, we're just going through the motions of what you do. You're kind of waiting in line, waiting to get water. And I'm over here having a conversation with a few women while some of my other women are over here at the water pump. And while I'm sitting, standing over here talking, one of the ladies comes running up to me. Her name was Ida. And she said, Lori, 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 there's a woman over here who has never heard about Jesus. I said, Ida, great. You should go and tell her about Jesus. She said, oh, no, Lori, you are the missionary. You should go and tell her about Jesus. And I said, oh, no, Ida, this is what you've been equipped to do. Go tell her about Jesus. She goes back over to the water pump. I'm continuing my conversation. A few minutes later, she comes running back. Lori, 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 she wants to follow Jesus. That's great, Ida. Did you tell her how she could follow Jesus? Oh, no, Lori, you're the missionary. You're supposed to go and tell her how to follow Jesus. I don't know if you're laughing at the story or you're laughing at my accent, probably both. And so I said to Ida, Ida, this is what you have been equipped to do. Go and tell her how she can follow Jesus. And she did. 
when we got back to the camp, Ida said these words, and I remember writing them down in my journal. She said, I didn't go to the well to do what I had intended to do. I didn't fill one bucket of water, but I am overflowing because I did exactly what God wanted me to do. What is your mindset regarding sharing the gospel? What is your mindset regarding obedience? When God puts you in a situation to be obedient as Ida was put in this situation, do you need to have all the plans in place before you're willing to move forward? Or can you move forward with enough faith on the first step, knowing that God will reveal the second? Jesus had disrupted the the woman's life. He had disrupted the disciples' life by taking them on this path. He's disrupting their life again. And he's coming back. He's saying, no, I've already got food. And here's what's most important. Here's what matters most. It is to do the will of the one who sent me. And then he's going to disrupt one more time their thinking regarding their responsibility or regarding their task in front of them. Verse 35. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. What are they looking at? They're probably looking at from back in verse 30 when the woman is going back and it said then the whole town started coming to Jesus. I think that Jesus has set his disciples down by the well to have a panoramic view of the town that's now coming this way toward them. And he's saying, lift up your eyes and look right now for the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sit you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored for that which you you have entered into their labor. And you're thinking that was incredibly confusing. Let me break it apart. He's using two proverbs in here. He said twice in there. Did you see it? Do you not say There are four months and then comes the harvest. Later on, he says, for there's another saying that holds true. One sows and another reaps. He's using two Proverbs. We use them in our own culture. Every culture has their own Proverbs. We have Proverbs like a picture is worth a thousand words. The early bird gets the worm. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. A good man is hard to find. Well, that one might be true, but technically is a proverb. (laughs) You can't have your cake and eat it too. But if you were to plop someone down into our culture and you were to start using that language, it would be like a foreign language to them because it wouldn't mean anything. I remember when all the texting abbreviations and acronyms came in. That was like the popular, you know, new slang that you use. And my daughter didn't just text it. Like she actually spoke it. So, yes. So, like, it was like learning a new foreign language in my own house. But so when she's like, you know, I don't remember, like 14 or something like that, we would have these conversations. And sometimes to me, it sounded like it was borderline disrespectful. But to her, it was just like, you know, complete being teenage cool, right? And so it would sound something like this. I, I remember this conversation. I don't just remember exactly what it was about. But it was something, sounded something like this. Seriously, mom, it's not that big of a deal, OMG. To which I said, Jordan, that sounds really disrespectful. To which she responded, JK, mom, JK. Some of you are going, I have no clue what that means. That's all right, because I said, Jordan, I don't even know what JK means. And she said, just kidding, mom, just kidding. 
So I turned to her and I said, um, well, YG, Jordan, YG. And she said, what does that mean? I said, you're grounded. <laughs> Sometimes you have to speak the language of people so that they understand what it is that you mean. In teenage years, we call that parenting. In missions, we call it contextualization. Jesus did it with his disciples. He is completely aware that they are disillusioned. Their equilibrium has been thrown off. And so he is using these proverbs, these phrases that they use in their culture to communicate one thing, that he has a will or he is there to do the will of him who sent me. And he's been about this one mission and now he's inviting them to participate in it. He's saying, look guys, you say four months and then the harvest, I'm telling you that I planted a seed and by divine suddenness, the harvest is coming right now. And you're invited to participate in it. You say that one sows and another reaps. I'm telling you right now that I sowed and you were about to reap that which you didn't participate or labor in sowing. So get ready, guys, because it's happening right now. You see how all of this is weaved together, how Jesus just completely stepped into their world, create in everyday life this discipleship lab for them to be able to grow and to become followers, mature, multiplier followers of Christ. He disrupted their status quo, their cultural assumptions with one intention, to change their mindset concerning his glorious mission. He challenged their vision, rearranged their perspective, uprooted their vocabulary, shifted their worldview, changed their jobs to encompass something much bigger, something much more radical, something much more revolutionary. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that's really great, lofty, high story. I could never be a part of that. But could I remind you, if we went back to the very beginning of this chapter, where did it start? It started with one step going down an unlikely path with unlikely people stopping in an unlikely town, having one conversation with an unlikely girl who goes back to her town. And now the town is erupting and coming to see Jesus Christ. In John 17, 4, Jesus said this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And a few verses later, he's praying to God, And this is what he says concerning his followers in verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. He's anticipating others believing through whose word? Do the disciples? Sure, but I believe it's this continuum. Today, when we read this, if Jesus were praying this, he's saying, I've sent you into the world and I'm praying not only for you, but I'm praying for those who will believe in me because of your testimony, because of your word about me. Dawson Trotman, he's a guy who founded Navigators. He wrote this small pamphlet. You could go to Kindle and download it for 99 cents. It's old. It's called Born to, be, Born to Reproduce, but it will rock your world. And in it, he says something like this. Where you find, and I, I don't mean this to be guilt, like to make you feel guilty, but just a reality check of a mindset. 
Where you find a Christian who is not leading men and women to Christ, something is wrong. In every Christian audience, I'm sure there are men and women who have been Christians for 5, 10, 20 years, but who do not know of one person who is living for Jesus Christ today because of them. Men, where is your man? Women, where is your woman? Where is the one whom you led to Christ and who is now going on with him? What is your mindset regarding God's mission? Is your mindset, I believe that God is on a mission and he is making his name known? Or is your mindset, I believe that God is on a mission making his name known and I have a role to play? What is your mindset? Very end of this chapter, this is where the fun part happens. It says this, that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus gloriously disrupted her life. Jesus gloriously disrupted the disciples' life. And he brought it all together in this culmination where a harvest happened in a culture that the Jewish disciples couldn't stand with a woman with a past who goes back to her town and does something. She didn't go to a class to figure out how to do this. She just went back to her town. She told her story, invited them to come, and introduce them to Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Man, where's your man? Woman, where is your woman that you have led to Jesus Christ and they are now following hard after him? If you don't know, it is time for Jesus to disrupt our thinking and our mindset concerning him using us in his mission. God, I thank you that you save us. And I thank you that you are patient with us when we get tired and cold and grumpy and calloused and familiar stories just become old. And our own salvation loses its sweetness. God, would you disrupt our thinking? God, put in our path this week people that you have purposed for us to have gospel conversations with. God, let not our church go. One more month, one more week without individual people rising up and saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and I'm doing what I was born and made to do to reproduce other disciples. God, anoint us with your spirit. Give us your power. Lead us past our fear and help us to move forward for your glory. 
In Jesus' name.